Welcome to The Stumbling Spirit, Contemplations on the Path of Resilience. Whether you realize it or not, you are resilient. It's your birthright. As you take in your next breath, know this truth. It's not only about your capacity to overcome difficult situations, but it's about your courage to do the necessary work to heal, learn, grow, and move forward. What you gain is invaluable wisdom. And it's through these hard stumbles in life that we often discover a new purpose that aligns with our spirit. My name is Fabio De Silva Fernandez, Reiki master, mindfulness coach, and mystical explorer. Join me weekly as the Stumbling Spirit podcast highlights the lives of extraordinary people like you, sharing transformative stories and beneficial practices of resilience to guide you on your wellness journey. Gregory Phillips is Aboriginal of the Wanyi and Jaru peoples of Australia. He has his PhD in medical anthropology and is a professor at Griffith University School of Medicine in Queensland. He runs a respected consulting firm called Abstar, which works with companies, governments, and healthcare providers to develop policy and services for Indigenous peoples based on Aboriginal values and cultural safety. Today we will discuss the inroads made and the challenges faced in establishing equitable conditions for Aboriginal peoples in Australia and across the globe. And we will learn more about Greg himself and what inspired him to be a vocal advocate and change maker for his community. I'm delighted to welcome my dear friend, Gregory Phillips on the show. Hi, Greg. Hi, Fab. For the layperson, what is medical anthropology? So different groups and cultures have different values, right? Men and women think about things very differently and have different values. You know, younger people and older people in general have different values. It's not to say every older person has the same value or every younger person does. But once you can understand what are common values amongst a group, and it could be an ethnic group or an age group or you know a cultural group or, or gender or any kind of political group perhaps or a law society. All of these groups in society have different values. And once we understand them, then we can tailor healthcare and services to better meet their needs. Medical anthropology is really understanding what's behind whether or not people, what they believe about medicine and illness and healthcare, and whether or not they will seek care or not. What are Aboriginal values? Well, of course, like any group, that's a big question. There's a lot of diversity amongst different Aboriginal tribes. Um, similar to First Nations people in Canada, we have 230 different language groups. Each of those nations are their own, you know, have their own set of values and beliefs and ways of governing the land and governing human relationships. But if you were to look at some general values that are common, we could say things like connection to country, understanding of sustainability in a very deep way. We could say understanding of the spirit world, understanding of the animal and plant world. Um, we can say connection to families. Aboriginal peoples in Australia have survived at least 60,000 years. Um, we would say time immemorial. We don't believe we came from Africa. Not that there's anything wrong with coming from Africa, but our people have very strong oral histories about our creation right here in this landscape. So being you know, the oldest surviving cultures on earth, 60,000 years through ice ages 
and through genocide itself, there are some values that held us in good st stead all that time. And they are relation, respect for country and respect for each other. What does cultural safety mean? Cultural safety is a euphemism for racism addressed or unaddressed, intended or unintended, in both people and systems. We can easily think about being unaware of another cultural group's beliefs or unaware of you know, how trans people might feel and think differently to cisgendered people, for example. But it requires more than awareness to have equitable healthcare outcomes or to level the playing field for everyone. That requires that we understand what are the barriers to healthcare. You know, Aboriginal women were only allowed to have their babies in hospitals, you know, since the 70s and 80s. So before then, we were non-citizens and Aboriginal women had to have babies on the veranda of the hospital if they were allowed to the hospital at all. So that's a very real structural barrier that has lots of hangover effects in generations today. So cultural safety refers to individuals and systems understanding what those barriers are removing our own biases, removing our own values and beliefs, and understanding what it is the patient or the community in front of us needs. What are their values and beliefs? What motivates them? And how can we work with them in alignment? So cultural safety refers to removing, some people call it unconscious bias, but are men really unconscious of the sexism we have towards women? I don't think so. I think we're in denial about it. Are white people really unaware of the racism that black and brown peoples face? I don't think so. I think it's more than awareness that we're talking about here. We're talking about structural reform and sharing of power and money. That's the real issue. So cultural safety refers to thinking about these changes in both individuals and systemic ways. It was important for me to set that foundation. You talked about how Aboriginal peoples in Australia have thrived but also survived genocide. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be a common theme with Aboriginal peoples, regardless of whether it's in Australia or in Canada. In Canada in recent years, a spotlight has been placed on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, as well mm -hmm. as the trauma that lingers today with the 60s scoop, which was when children were stolen from Aboriginal families and given away to white families, as well as the abuse in residential schools, and the resulting Truth and Reconciliation Commission. What is it that causes segments of society and institutions to devalue Indigenous people? Well, money is primary. If I can answer it on a global level first, coronavirus, bushfires and floods, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, these are all the natural consequences of colonization. Colonization is not an event that happened in 1492 or 1788. It's a process. It's an ongoing process. Colonization means that human beings think they are better than the earth. And so they detach themselves and their governance and their power and sense of self from the earth and believe that they are superior to the earth and to human and animals. And so that process we can call colonization. And it means that one tribe then gets greedier than the next and wants more land or more money. 
And so there we have the genocide in Australia and Canada and lots of places around the world. But as I said, colonisation is an ongoing process. Those events happened back then, but we are still colonised today in the sense of we can't make decisions about our land or our relationships or our families in the same way, based on our own values and beliefs. We have to live in two worlds of of what non-Indigenous people believe and, and think and what we know to be true. When we have these grand shifts in the human sense of self, meaning starting to believe that we are bigger and better than nature, then we start to mess with nature and we start to mess with land and we start to mess with people's relationships with land. And so the wars and the you know oil situation and coronavirus and all these things we're seeing now are a result of us being disconnected from the natural balance of humans between humans and earth. Um, in a more here and now sense, you know, Aboriginal people have survived these things. The West has a fantasy about a survivalist ethos that it's survival of the fittest and that's how you get survive and all humans are nasty to each other so just get over it is the basic kind of theory but of course to aboriginal peoples that's quite naive that's not how we see the world we're not a survivalist ethos we're a relational ethos and for this i rely on dr mary graham Annie mary graham's a very wise elder and philosopher. And she talks about us having win-win diplomacy, that the way that we survived all of this and understanding that humans, we have weak and foible egos, understanding that humans fight sometimes. Aboriginal cultures developed an ethos that could contain and overcome the individual human ego. And this was called a relational ethos, meaning that the other person winning means I also win. We don't have a dual mentality of win-loss, you know, guilty, not guilty, left or right politics, male or female. This kind of binary, very limited way of seeing the world is to us quite primitive and quite inhumane and quite unsustainable. And so if you have a relational ethos, you're able to see a multiplicity of possibilities rather than just two. And this is how we feel that win-win diplomacy is in everyone's best interest. But it's easy to see with the modern nation state how that can be so exploited easily. You know, I have never heard a definition of colonization quite like the way you described it. And it makes a lot of sense to me. This idea that people feel that they're better than nature, that they can conquer nature. Mm. And then when you speak about the relational aspect of the ethos of Aboriginal peoples in Australia, I really resonate with that. What can we as a society learn from Aboriginal peoples in that regard? The first is to be still. The second is to listen to the land. The third is to give up the fantasy that we have discovered anything. Western science, anyway, is on this fantasy of discovery, um, that they're the first to discover certain things. Again, that's human ego. We use science as a cloak for ego to believe that we've discovered new things. And not to say that Western science is useless. Of course, it's very valuable. But there's a whole set of motivations for science that need to be uncovered. What we can learn is, yes, to be still, to remove ourselves out of the equation so that we can see and hear the earth properly and that we can see and hear ourselves properly. 
and that we can see and get past our human foibles of ego to seeing what the other person or the other community or the plants and animals need. There's a narrative in Australia and and in many parts of the world that colonisation is an excuse and it's Aboriginal people whinging again and everything's been done to us and poor us. But really the unseen part in all of this is what colonisation has done to white people. That's actually the issue in my mind. Both, of course, yes, it is about genocide and the effect on the, on, on the victims and the aggrieved, but it is also about what is in a human motivation that would enable people to be so disjointed that they would do that in the first place and do it to their own people, first and foremost, let alone to anybody else. That's the issue we ought to be addressing. We say to non-Aboriginal people, our white brothers and sisters here in Australia, if you want to close the gap in Aboriginal health outcomes or in housing or education and justice, we're not the problem. Actually, you are. And the science and your systems that you think are so great and equal and welcoming and open to everybody, actually, there's a whole lot of values and motivations in there that are not being discussed. And I'll give you a very real example. And I'm talking here about the British Columbia First Nations communities and the research that was done about 20 years ago, looking at all of the sorts of inputs going into communities, housing, you know, education, funding, staff levels, and all of the kind of outputs that were coming out of um, those communities in health and education and other social outcomes and economic outputs. And there was a very interesting correlation Those communities that had the least amount of youth suicide were those that had a higher level of governance. So this is also true in the Harvard American Indian Economic Development Program have done near on 20 years of research that find similar results, that those communities that have the best level of participation and and self-governance are those that tend to have the least amount of youth suicide. Now, in Australia, we see similar patterns. It's a very unusual correlation. And why would something so foreign as seemingly foreign as community governance participation have an effect on youth suicide? Because if you're using a Western frame of reference and Western science, Western epidemiology, people tend to look at the individual who is thinking about suicide and what's wrong with them or their family or their community as opposed to A, what's right with them and what are the strengths they have, and B, what are all the social and systemic factors impacting on them. In Australia, we're measuring youth suicide amongst Indigenous people as if we're the problem, but we're not measuring police brutality, for example, and harassment of young Aboriginal people on a daily basis. We're not measuring whether or not those Aboriginal kids have access to Aboriginal language and culture in their school curriculum. We're not measuring whether those teachers understand that Aboriginal kids have different learning styles, still valid, just different. We're not measuring whether the nurses and doctors can say the word Aboriginal. What I'm saying is if we are serious about equity or equality or giving everyone a fair go, as we say in Australia, though there's a a mainstream, strong national value of a fair go, then we need to be looking at all of these factors, not just the mad, bad and sad Aboriginal people. We actually need to be looking at the systemic factors that are creating that. And there are lots of examples where non-Aboriginal peoples or white peoples around the world will have similarly bad health outcomes if they're treated terribly and have the same sorts of discriminatory policies that, that we're seeing in Indigenous communities around the world. And that disjointedness and disconnection as well as the robbing of that self-governance touched the land of Australia in 1770. I want to approach this question with sensitivity 
you've already touched upon it with some high-level examples, and perhaps maybe you could delve a little bit deeper. Can you describe the impact that colonization has had on Aboriginal people and culture in Australia? Sure. Of those 230 different language groups at the time of invasion, we now have only about 60 or 80 of those that are still spoken. We weren't citizens until 1967 in our own lands. So that means my oldest brothers and sisters were born non-citizens. My parents were only ever allowed to work in the back of the cafe rather than serving white customers in the front. So this is all within living memory. My oldest brother was a member of the Stolen Generation, similar to the residential school survivors and, and stories in First Nations communities. We refer to it as Stolen Generations, where killed, children were forcibly removed. Again, people will often say, oh, but that's all in the past, get over it. Well, actually, there's very real scientific evidence that the past has affected today. So in Western Australia, one of the states, they've done a landmark study of Aboriginal child health outcomes, a longitudinal study. And they find that if an Aboriginal child today in Western Australia has one ancestor who was a member of the Stolen Generations, that statistically that child will have worse health outcomes than Aboriginal people who didn't have a member of their family taken as a part of the Stolen Generation. And similarly, if that child had two ancestors in two generations removed, then they again would have doubly worse health outcomes than kids who might have only had one member of their families as part of the Stolen Generations. So it's very real evidence that past policies affect health outcomes today. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a short version of how these things impact us on a, on a personal level. In schools, Aboriginal studies is still not a part of the national curriculum, or it is technically a part of the national curriculum since 2014, but there have been no investments in teacher skills or capacity to teach Aboriginal studies. So most schools just treat it as an optional extra that's not taught. And again, this is very real evidence where colonisation impacts not just Aboriginal people, but non-Aboriginal people. If we don't teach a positive view of Aboriginal studies, meaning what was Aboriginal medicine, science, engineering, law and philosophy pre-invasion, uh, and what is our reality today, if we don't teach these things, not only do Aboriginal kids, not only can they not see themselves in the classroom and therefore are less likely to attend and complete school, but so too are non-Aboriginal people then denied the truth of their own history. So most non-Aboriginal people don't know that there were massacres and genocide in Australia. This means that they then can't see past their own biases. I mean, give you a very real example. Why is Aboriginal knowledge good for everyone? Why are Aboriginal studies good for everyone? Well, in 2020, there were bushfires, a massive bushfires across Australia that made global news, quite literally looked like Armageddon. And it's only after that, that white landowners and farmers have kind of woken up and smelled the roses and thought, oh, gee, Aboriginal people know how to prevent bushfires. Oh, shit, maybe we should learn something off them. Aboriginal people, of course, have been graciously trying to share this knowledge of how to manage water flows and protect bushfires and grow grasses that require little water but are great food sources. You can make great bread that is gluten-free out of them. But farm owners and Western-trained environmental food science-type people and archaeologists and the rest of it, they've been so blind to the richness of Aboriginal knowledge 
because of this denial of genocide. So their own science is skewed and very ineffectual in the realities of living here in this landscape. And so it's only now that non-Aboriginal communities are starting to wake up to that this science might actually be useful and this knowledge might actually be not just a whole heap of mumbo-jumbo, but actually very practical for here and now. There's another issue to that. Aboriginal people have been, in some cases, we've been far too gracious in trying to share our knowledge and get it recognised and valued. And of course, Western people quite often will only value it when they can make money out of it. So, oh, they've suddenly discovered Aboriginal knowledge is good for bush medicines. Quick, let's patent some of that knowledge and make money out of it. Oh, gee, Aboriginal people are good to prevent bushfires. Maybe we better ask them and respect their knowledge and get them involved in land ranger programs across the country. Well, that's all well and good, but are we really talking about as a nation that Aboriginal people should simply forget genocide, give up our knowledge for free so that white people can keep their land and be the landholders and we still have nothing and are alienated from our own landscapes? So that's where colonisation is coming home to roost right here and now. (laughs) It's affecting Aboriginal families for generations in our health outcomes and levels of trauma and levels of access to services. But it's also very, very really, in a very clear way, impacting white people's ability to survive and see themselves. You touched upon stories of your family earlier. Would you be able to describe what your upbringing was like living in Cloncurry and Mount Isa? Sure. So Cloncurry and Mount Isa are small, rural, semi-remote towns, semi-desert. Mount Isa is a mining, big mining industry routinely ruining the land, lots of cattle, beer and football. That was the kind of growing up in a small regional town. And a whole lot of racism that we didn't even see because we thought it was normalised. It's only when I moved away and went down to the cities and travelled a bit and I'd go home and then I could kind of see the level of dysfunctional racism. But, you know, I I was lucky. My great-grandmother on my mum's side comes from a place called Massacre Inlet, So she was born around 1840s, 1850s, and her generations were being massacred until, well, the last massacres, known massacres, occurred in Australia in the 1920s. So she was dodging massacres, and my great-grandfather, her and him got together, and they had seven children. My great-grandfather was Chinese. There was lots of Asian, Chinese, Japanese, um, Malaysian, Indonesian, Sri Lankan workers who came to Australia across the north of Australia as part of the gold rushes in the late 1850s and early 1900s. And they were indentured labour, a kind of form of slave labour. Aboriginal people by that stage were slave labour, had been moved off lands and onto reserves and missions, were expected to work in the cattle industry for free or for very low wages or for, for a meal once in a blue moon. So my grandfather, so Aboriginal great-grandmother and a Chinese great-grandfather, they made the best of their life. Um, They had six children, seven children actually, one died at childbirth. Those five women were lucky to be lucky in inverted commas to not be on reserve because they were deemed by the authorities to be Chinese or alien was the terminology. So they were deemed to be not Australian citizens, not Aboriginal. If they were Aboriginal, they would have had to be locked up on reserves like everybody else. But because they were deemed to be Chinese, because the father was Chinese, 
they were living on the edge of town in, in Chinese vegetable garden squatter camps. So very mixed history. And that's a common story across the north of Australia of Aboriginal and Asian families intermarrying. Most of the men, Aboriginal men by that stage, had been murdered or sent away to other reserves, you know, Aboriginal women. And the Chinese and Asian communities, men were forbidden to marry anyone, like they weren't allowed to marry white people, and they were single men working a long way away from home. So there were lots of intermarriages between Asian and Aboriginal communities. So that unusual history means that we had family on reserve and we had family off reserve. And you can see this classic pattern in colonisation of Indigenous peoples across the world of divide and rule. What that meant, though, is my grandmother and grandfather were kind of free, not fully free on reserve, but kind of free, meaning they didn't enjoy the same rights as citizens, but were allowed to work, work in the cattle industry or, or elsewhere. Aboriginal people on reserves were not allowed to work or were only allowed to work in approved industries. They never saw any of the benefit or profit. They were controlled with who were allowed to marry who. And in a community where lots of our family grew up, a remote reserve just near Mount Isa and Cloncurry called Dumaji, the missionaries only left there in 1984. So until then, unofficially, but in a very real way for people living on that reserve, some of our family, the missionaries still controlled who married who, who could get a job or not, who could travel to see family off reserve. So that impacted our family, of course, and many of our families in lots of ways. And it means that now families are just reconnecting still, still finding each other across states, across different policies, across reserves. This is, of course, a very painful history. And I think the effect, what we can see clearly with intergenerational trauma, similar to generations post the Holocaust, um, Jewish researchers and psychologists have been able to clarify the intergenerational aspects of that kind of trauma, similar with Vietnam veterans and, and other war veterans and the kind of patterns that happen through the generations. Similar to that, we can see in Indigenous communities, far more complex and more long-standing, I suppose, but we can see patterns where, so my great-grandmother's generation was classically in flight or fight mode, like running away from massacres to survive. My grandfather's and grandmother's generation then were the first to allow to be to work. So they worked hard to try and make good and to survive and to, you know, make a better future, but still kind of didn't have the benefits of dealing with the trauma of those, you know, of the, the very real racism and genocide happening around them and to them. And then my mother and her generation had access to school till grade four or five, inevitably, not usually until grade 10 or 12. So they worked hard, very hard, raised our generation. And what we find then in our generation is we're kind of the first generation that's been allowed the space, the breathing space to actually start dealing with all the trauma. So that's why you see this generation and the next generation below me and the next generation having very high rates of poor health care and poor access to school. And Western psychologists have no idea of any of this, what I'm talking about. They're not trained yet in how to deal with complex intergenerational PTSD. Um, there's a few, but very few of them have understood their own racial biases so that they can be removed so they can work with Aboriginal people correctly. So that's why we say colonisation is ongoing today, because these systems have to be able to see themselves if they are serious about so-called helping.
And part of that breathing space afforded you the opportunity to pursue an education in healthcare. So what inspired yeah. you to move in that direction? Well, I mean, as I said, my mother's generation didn't have access to being able to complete school and weren't citizens. So, you know, what inspires me, of course, is the stories, not only of surviving and thriving through all this adversity from my great-grandparents, grandparents, and, and mum's generation, but it's also that there's incredible richness in the stories they told, incredible richness about the weather patterns, about human realities, about our economy, on the bones of our ass, when we when mum was a single mum and raising six kids, mum still had what I understand now to be an Aboriginal philosophy of economy. I didn't understand it at the time, which was what goes around comes around, something like that, like a circular economy, meaning if we have some extra, we'll give it to the family who needs it. Of course, we should let our cousins and other family or extended family that aren't even related stay with us if they don't have a house. That's what we call a circular economy. So the bad part of it is, was that we're in poverty, right? We're all scratching around. And the good part of it is the way we survived that was the Aboriginal philosophy of the circular economy. If we didn't have that value system, we might have found it much tougher. And so what inspires me is to retrace and re-understand the good bits because in the therein lie the seeds of our survival through all of these millennia. And therein lie the seeds of what actually the rest of humanity needs as well, if we sit still enough and listen properly. In a recent interview, I was chatting with a friend who described her experience of being dismissed as a woman and also a woman of color in the Canadian healthcare system. Can you share some insights about what Aboriginal people encounter in the healthcare system? Very similar um, levels of racism to First Nations communities in, in Canada and, and elsewhere. What we're seeing is a clash of paradigms. So racism, forget, don't forget, is not just about interpersonal differences or being mean to each other. Racism is partly that, but it is also much more clearly about structural privilege and people holding on to power and money so others don't have it. But more than all of that, as a, you, the first question you ask is my understanding of colonization, and it's about money. Where does the Western obsession with money come from? It's because of greed. Where does greed come from? It's because of fear. Where does fear come from? It's because of being disconnected from the earth and one's own values. So that's the big picture. The small picture or smaller picture is that Aboriginal people still today have are routinely not diagnosed properly or not given equal access to certain medical procedures. So there's a lot of clarity in the science about how we're routinely discriminated against in the health system. But the thing that's really missing, the conversation we haven't had is why, and it's we're starting to have this conversation in Australia now, I was a part of an effort to get cultural safety written into the national public health law and a part of the registration requirements for all doctors, nurses, social workers, physios, etc. All registered health professionals in Australia now have to understand cultural safety and see their own biases or potential for biases and potential for racism and have access to resources to make sure it doesn't impact on Aboriginal patients. So there are certain structural things we can do, but at an interpersonal level, what we're seeing is a clash of paradigms. Essentially, white health professionals think that they are benevolent, good people who couldn't possibly be racist or sexist or ableist, for example, because they're good people. 
And by and large, most health professionals are good people, but that's not the issue. We have to separate intent from effect. It doesn't matter if you intend good. What we're talking about is the reality of the outcomes. The effect is very real. So someone might intend to be nice, but without knowing what they don't know, might actually be quite discriminatory to an Aboriginal patient or community member. It's not about intent and this self-knowledge or self-value of being good people, in inverted commas. That's not the issue. That's a deeply held value. The Western health professions are based on this value of doing no harm and being good people. Well, that's fine. But what's missing in that is that what is good for Aboriginal people is not always the exact same science or paradigm or or way of intervening as it is for for non-Aboriginal people. Diabetes, for example, Western health professionals think, well, we're scientists, we've got all the science, we know that it's about blood sugar levels and uh, about fruit and vegetables and blah, blah, blah. And they run out there with their posters and education campaigns trying to tell Aboriginal people, eat your fruit and vegetables, and kind of this belief that you're naughty if you don't and if you don't turn up to your, your health appointments. Well, of course, that misses a whole lot of other reality that they can't see with that Western science and that belief that they're good people and they're helping. What it misses is that, well, actually, in a lot of Aboriginal communities, a litre of milk might cost $14. A kilo of meat might cost $92, as opposed to in the city, it costs $20 or something. So we're talking about the political economy of fruit and vegetables here. That's an issue. We're talking about whether or not those education programs about diabetes are in an appropriate language. We're talking about Do people understand the emotional backstory of someone who might be overeating or eating a lot of sugar? Why are they doing that? What are the intergenerational trauma aspects that might be impacting on that person? What are the other health services that might be required to understand this complex situation? A clash of paradigms means that white health professionals in Australia, meaning well, often run out to save Aboriginal people, naughty patients who won't eat their fruit and vegetables. I'm being facetious, of course. What we have to do is, A, empower Aboriginal health professionals and Aboriginal communities to have much greater say in how health programs are designed and delivered, and B, help non-Aboriginal people to understand that their way of doing things is not always the best way, and how can they blend the best of Western science with Aboriginal knowledges and science to come up with a far more effective set of interventions in obesity or diabetes, for example. This is what we say, though, that kind of approach of blending Western and Indigenous knowledges, if there is equal governance in design and delivery and resource allocation, that's not good just for Aboriginal people. That's good for everybody. See, it's not a dual winner or loser thing we're talking about here. It's not just to be nice to Aboriginal people. Decolonization is not just a nice political statement. It's not a left versus right political fantasy. Decolonization is necessary for all of our benefit. You wrote a book called Addictions and Healing in Aboriginal Country. What is the connection between alcohol and drug addiction and the Aboriginal plight? I'll answer that by talking about the Boers in South Africa, the, the Dutch community in South Africa. And when the Boers, when the Dutch won, that war um, around the turn of the century, they routinely started treating leftover English communities pretty badly, meaning they weren't allowed to speak their language, of course, treated black 
and coloured communities even worse. But I'm focusing on the way they treated the leftover English people for a reason. I'll come to in a second. So English was outlawed. They weren't allowed to speak their language as much. And this is all on view at the National Apartheid Museum in Soweto. And what that resulted in is the surprise, surprise, their health statistics got worse. If you don't have good housing, we can't speak your language or don't have access to good food. Surprise, surprise, your health statistics are worse. And you will have a set of trauma about being discriminated against so badly. So this is what we're talking about here is not just black and brown people's whinging. We're talking about a pattern that is very clearly observable. If one group calculatingly denies another group access to the same resources it has, then surprise, surprise, the second group has worse health outcomes than the first. I mean, gender, for example. If men calculatingly control women for a couple of millennia and treat marriage as if it's a property exchange, then of course women are going to have worse health outcomes than men. Not because women are any weaker. They're not the weaker sex. It's because they haven't had the same level of decision-making and access to resources. To answer your question, the plight of Aboriginal people in Australia, addictions and alcohol and drugs are the natural result of people trying to medicate themselves from unresolved trauma and from being disconnected from the land. And this is true for any human being, black, white or brindle, male or female or any gender. If you don't have access to a sense of your own spirituality, and for us that's land um, and waters, if you don't have access to that, to a, a, a rich spiritual life, and I'm not talking about religion, I'm talking about deeper human values. Some religions have elements of it. Of course, lots of religions have a whole lot of power and control and dirty money in it as well. But if we're talking about spiritual values, every human, if you don't have access to it and you're not respected for your full self, then you're going to try and find that medicine or that healing somewhere else. And poor white communities, like poor black and brown communities, try to self-medicate their pain through alcohol and drugs. Of course, that causes a whole lot more problems for that person or their family. Um, so it's not an excuse, but it's certainly a part of the explanation. There's a national policy debate in Australia or a bit that's been raging. I tell you this, Aboriginal people were only called lazy when we stopped working for free. Up until the 1960s, we worked for free in slave labour on the railroad and cattle industries and mining industries. And when there were some court cases and Aboriginal people were, the court said, no, you must pay them equally. White landowners just sacked all the Aboriginal workers. They didn't just pay them equally, they just sacked them all. So it's since then that we can see further breakdown of Aboriginal families. So men not being able to work means a higher likelihood of alcohol and drugs and violence within the family. So it's not an excuse, but it's certainly a part of the explanation. So intergenerational trauma is passed down through generations, and one of the ways is through alcohol and drugs as a form of medication. But of course, that creates a whole lot more problems for non-Aboriginal people as well. What is the bridge to healing that trauma so that that self-medication is no longer required? Well, there are many Aboriginal elders across the world and non-Aboriginal, you know, scientists such as Gabor Mate and others, Claudia Black, Sharon Wigashetta Cruz. I mean, many people can can explain this. But my way of understanding this is that, and through my work and my studies, is that we're all born with a good human spirit, 
something deep down that is pure and fresh, you know, around about near our belly button, this resides. Some people might call it a spirit. But being human means we're going to have pain at some point in our life. You know, someone's going to die or there's going to be an accident or someone's going to be mean to us. This is just part of what happens for humans. So trauma goes in on top of the good spirit at the belly button. Now, somebody who's got access to their own spiritual values or a community of people that has good communication and ceremonies or language or words for this experience of trauma will have access to healthy grieving and healthy healing techniques through song or dance or ceremony or psychology or whatever it is you believe in, it doesn't really matter, but they'll have access to some form of healing. But for those communities that don't have access to that or families where that's been broken down or made harder to see through poverty or or racism or colonisation, for example, or sexism, then that person will look to heal themselves and find a way forward. And most often, most people will reach out for an addiction to numb the pain. And the addiction is not always alcohol and drugs. Sometimes, you know, it's gambling. There's process addictions and substance addictions. So substance addictions, alcohol, drugs, marijuana, whatever. Process addictions are things like gambling, too much sex, too much work, too much food, too much church. All of these things are not in and of themselves bad or evil. It's the why we use them. So it doesn't really matter how much a person drinks alcohol or when they drink alcohol or where they drink alcohol. It matters why they're drinking alcohol. If you're a young Aboriginal or white kid growing up in a community where everybody around you's answer to problems is to drink, then guess what? That's what you do if that's what's taught to you. Similarly, if you know, you've got one parent, if there's dysfunction in the family and one parent decides that, well, overworking is my way of avoiding my pain, then guess what the kids pick up? overwork and perfectionism, or they go to the other extreme of depression and anger. The connection between trauma and addiction is that addiction is a medicating tool. The good spirit is down near the belly button. The trauma goes in near the solar plexus. And if it's resolved, great, it comes out and the person can reconnect with their true self. If it doesn't get resolved, then it just gets buried and it continues to get buried down in the gut and it keeps getting pushed down and the pain's too great. So the alcohol and drugs or the process addiction goes in on top and that's what people use to make sense of their reality in life. So to deal with trauma properly and get back to the good spirit, we can't, in my view, we can't just do that by therapy or going deep into the trauma straight away. We actually have to remove the unhealthy coping mechanisms first. So the overwork or the alcohol or the drugs or the whatever the distraction is, that stuff has to be dealt with first then we're a little bit more stable and calmer to be able to more safely deal with the actual deep trauma and re- and grieve what we weren't able to grieve. So that's a picture of an individual healing journey. But what that requires is a community of like-minded people around them, a community of spirituality, not religion, but spirituality. I'm not talking weird hooga booga spirituality. I'm talking spirituality that is rooted in the earth and where human ego is removed. And then dealing with that trauma and pain and grieving safely can be done in many forms. As I said a few before, through ceremony and language, through yoga and meditation, through counseling and psychotherapy, through 12-step programs, through anything that makes sense for the individual. There's no one right answer but it's with a really clear intent to get to the bottom of it. They talk about the onion, 
the layers of the onion. There's so much pain in us. And we're also dealing with the pain of our forebears, not just our own story. And there's so much layers that it's impossible to heal properly. That's not, I don't believe that. It's completely possible to heal and to get to the core of the onion. And I've seen it, but it does require effort. Our human experience in this moment in time is that the brave warriors are the ones who are willing to do that work and do that work not for their own benefit, but so that they can reconnect with their proper spirit and then go back to earth and then share that with others. We're not going to survive climate change just with carbon credit schemes. We need a bit of both. You established Abstar in 2007. Can you describe the kind of work that Abstar does and why is it important? So Abstar stands for Aboriginal Straight Talking About Responsibility and Respect. And so we work with non-Aboriginal companies, government departments, organisations, NGOs, to help them see their own whiteness and their own biases and step them through a cognitive and emotional pedagogical journey to turn that ship around and start to see another way of working, see a paradigm. So we remove barriers and systems in individuals and systems. And with Aboriginal communities, we work to help our communities see self-determination and see self and see the good stuff, not just the negative stuff. And actually, many of our Aboriginal communities and organisations are also confused. We're thinking that white health paradigms will save us or white justice or white education paradigms. But actually, it's a process of uncovering what our own is and then blending it with the systems or the programs we might be working with. So we do this through training and education, through strategy, through evaluation, and through well-being programs. What kinds of projects have you undertaken with corporations and public institutions? For example, New South Wales Health, 110,000 employees. We trained 40 of their sexual assault executives across the state. They came to us and said, how do we get more Aboriginal people? We need to employ more. And we said, well, guess what? Aboriginal people don't want to work in racist systems. So there's your problem. A poster is not going to fix it. So we've taken them on a journey and evaluated our progress at every step of the way for them to change their thinking and paradigm. Then the next level down from them, their executive directors, and then the next level down from them. And we've done all of this in partnership every step of the way with all the Aboriginal health workers in that system. Has that decolonized or changed New South Wales health? God, no. Has it helped turn that ship around and see them see the problem far more clearly and had a set of solutions to move forward? Yes. Another example is Telstra Corporation, major multinational telecommunications company. They were stumbling along, as many organizations in Australia do, with cultural awareness, thinking that if, if they learn about our culture, then everything will be fixed, as if our culture is finite and as if it will fix the problem of racism. So we said, no, 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 stop learning about our culture. That's nice. Start learning about your own culture and your own self. Why do you have those values? Why does the system set up that way? Why do you think telecommunications is disconnected from the earth? Let's have that conversation. And so you can start to turn the ship around for organizations and individuals and companies to see the true nature of the problem and start them on a path of what solutions look like. What international work have you done? Several. I worked with medical schools in Australia and New Zealand to rewrite their curriculum so that non-Aboriginal doctors, trainee doctors, would learn about Aboriginal and Māori peoples before they graduated. That was similar to work and that helped a similar Canadian project get started. 
So medical curriculum, healing and addictions programs. I worked in James Bay Cree communities and a little bit of work in Northern California to help communities start to see youth suicide, for example, more clearly and see the, the trauma aspect of it and start on that road to healing. Yeah, and worked a lot internationally about cultural safety. To clarify the definition of what it is, culture is not the answer. It is a part of the answer. Now, I didn't coin the term cultural safety or create it. That was Maori nurses in New Zealand. But I've redefined it in an Australian context and share our knowledge overseas so that it might help other communities. What are you most proud of in terms of the work that you've done? There's several things I could say in terms of system reform, like writing that medical curriculum that got accredited for Australia and New Zealand, leading a group of Aboriginal advocates to make sure cultural safety got written into national public health law, setting up the National Aboriginal Healing Foundation as a response to Kevin Rudd's apology, writing that book about addictions and healing and working with communities. But they're all, in a way, surface things. The most important thing that I could say I'm proud of is a, that my nieces and nephews see that there is an answer. I'm not always right, but they can see a path. One of the side effects of intergenerational trauma is we're quite happy to tear each other down, right? Crabs in a bucket, divide and rule. We've learned the colonizers' tricks. So Aboriginal peoples are not that great at giving each other good compliments because of the system and the stresses we're all working under. But every now and then someone will just contact you completely unsolicited and say, no, I'm watching you from afar. I like what you're doing and I thank you. Keep going. They're the moments when you just keep going. In your view, what needs to be done going forward to establish equitable conditions for Aboriginal people? I think it's multi-part, but primarily Australia has to contend with genocide. We have to see ourselves more clearly. The national identity is confused. We are still hanging on to England for dear life. And the excuse was, oh, well, we'll wait till the Queen passes. We have a deep psychological, as a country, investment in the motherland, even though we kind of hate the Poms and hate their class and we try to be fair going egalitarian. We also have a deep daddy issue foreign policy with America. We won't do anything unless the Americans say it's okay to do. So we're deeply confused. As a nation, we're kind of like a young teenager who's just had their 18th or their 21st birthday. We're still a bit drunk. We're still in party mode. We still think we know it all. And we're really shit scared about China. So none of these issues are going to be resolved. We're not going to be able to deal with China or the States or America or, or England or any other country squarely in the eye until we come to terms with the truth of who we are. And that means dealing with genocide, not just for the benefit of Aboriginal communities, but so that all those convicts that came on the ship can see themselves and have their story told, and we can remake who we are as a nation. Until we do that, we're going to be stumbling around using a failed Westminster system that's failing all around the world and shit scared of communism, don't know who we are, and yet the answers are right beneath our feet governance and how to manage country, how to manage human relationships. This win-win thinking, this diplomacy is right beneath our feet, but we're not going to fully value it and see it until we see the truth of what's happened. So that's the primary issue. The secondary issue then is that we have to teach Aboriginal studies in primary and high school. That's a quick win takes investment. And then the next thing is we need to 
become a republic. I don't want a republic if it just simply means Aboriginal people are recolonised under another name. I do want a republic if it's an opportunity for Aboriginal sovereignty and white sovereignty and Aboriginal science and Western science and all the new Australian science, the so-called multicultural communities. Everybody since 1770 is an immigrant, by the way. But if we can blend all of these knowledges and systems in an equal way where we are willing to share power and money, that's a very big if. Are white landholders and miners and corporations willing to share governance, share power? then we have a hope of surviving climate change. If we don't do that work, we're going to be stumbling around as lost and confused as every other nation on earth. What does resilience mean to you? I like and I don't like the word resilience. I like it because, of course, I, to me, it means the inner spirit and the ability to sit quiet long enough to hear it and to come from our own inner truth, devoid of ego and pain. What I don't like about the word is it's often deployed as a proxy for good healthcare. Oh, we're being, the police are being racist to Aboriginal people. Oh, they just need to be more resilient. That'll stop them suiciding. Just be more resilient. Even in white communities, there's a, amongst the white mental health brigade and using that Western paradigm, some of which is very valuable, there's a belief that if we just teach people to be more resilient, then they won't have as much anxiety or depression. Well, again, that's to me very naive and misses half of the story. We need to be also looking at what is producing that anxiety and depression. What are the systemic and societal impacts? And they're things like advertising, the fashion industry, junk food advertising. If we don't understand these bigger forces where people start to hate themselves in their own body and their own mind, or if we don't understand what's led to intergenerational trauma and how to heal and resolve it, then we will have more and more people getting depressed and anxious. Surprise, surprise. So the answer is not pills. I mean, that might be a part of the answer for acute cases, but it's the best of Western science and sitting still and having the right community of healing-minded people with similar values that can help a person grieve and fully understand themselves. So I like the term resilience. Yes, we should build it, but not if we're seeing that person as an individual who might be mad, bad and sad. We have to understand all of the family and social impacts that's impacting on them, but that we can also help them find a path away out of. From a personal perspective, what are your practices of resilience in terms of what you resonate with in relation to that word? My practices of healing and resilience are morning, you might call it meditation and prayer. I would call it quiet time. You know, we have smoking ceremonies and other ceremonies in Aboriginal culture that can be used at the right time to help calm and get us back in touch with the earth and with the spirit world and with um, our dreams. I go to 12-step programs for family dysfunction and my addictions, thankfully not active anymore. I go to healing groups, I go to therapy when I need to. I have more preventative things like you know, a healthy group of like-minded individuals and go back to country, go bush as often as I can. And how do these practices benefit you? Well, if I'm not centered and still, then I can't function properly. So they're essential. And if I can't talk to someone else about it or write it down or punch a punching bag when I need to, or the fastest way to deal with your feelings is to feel them. As humans, we become very scared of our feelings. We can't deal with our feelings through our head. 
That's why I don't like mental health as a paradigm. We have to deal with our feelings in our feelings, in our heart, and face them and just accept them. And then they change and then they heal and then they move and and our mind becomes clearer as well. So it's a bit of both. How can people reach you if they want to contact you? I'm on LinkedIn, abstar.com, A-B-S-T-A-R-R.com. Thank you so much, Greg, for sharing your story and for your knowledge and wisdom on this topic. I really appreciate it. No worries. Happy to chat. Thank you for listening to The Stumbling Spirit, Contemplations on the Path of Resilience. This is Fabio Da Silva Fernandez. Join me again next week for another episode of Transformative Stories and Beneficial Practices to Guide You on Your Wellness Journey. If you wish, you can follow and DM me on Instagram at The Stumbling Spirit. Until next time, take a deep breath and another step forward on your path of resilience.